So I'm going to start out by reading a paragraph from The Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt. This is in the chapter on the bureaucracy of safetyism. This took place in Bergen Community College in New Jersey in 2014. This is the paragraph. An art professor was placed on leave without pay and sent to psychological counseling for a social media post. The post showed a photograph of his young daughter wearing a t-shirt that depicted a dragon and the words, I will take what is mine with fire and blood, which the school claimed was, quote, threatening. The professor explained that the shirt referenced the popular TV series Game of Thrones, but an administrator insisted that fire could refer to an AK-47. So this is just an example of um, the the climate that has kind of overtaken college campuses over the last four or five years, like I think they kind of trace it back to 2013 to 2014, um, where th this kind of just crazy safetyism cropped up for the first time. And yeah. Well, yeah, we've all been reading, each of us has been reading the, the book, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and I think his name yeah, is Lukianoff. Greg Lukianoff. Yeah, the director, I believe, of the FIRE uh, website. Um, but Fire and blood. Fire and blood. But while you're uh, while we're reading that book, I kept on thinking, because uh, they bring up a number of examples where in universities, uh, administrators had seemed to be really pushing to, to exert a lot of power and control over the, uh, the faculty and the professors. And it seemed like a lot of the impetus for pushing this kind of social justice type way of viewing the world was coming from administrators, if, you know, if not mostly from administrators. Thinking back on like the Evergreen State College, that whole fiasco, and Eric Weinstein's brush with the, uh, you know, the equality kind of initiatives that were being pushed down their throats. So I decided that I would, I wanted to look a little bit more into that. And I found a book called Fall of the Faculty by, I believe his name is Eric Ginsberg, who's a uh, a professor of political science at Johns Hopkins University. He's pretty much as high up in their program as you can go. And back in 2011, he published a book based on his 40 years of experience as a professor um, that was basically a tirade against administrators constantly pushing for more and more control over the faculty and pushing the faculty out, basically, of the college, making a, you know, a university into sort of a, a little mini vacation, you know, just the corporatization of, of universities so that it became less and less about, you know, in, you know learning and knowledge and truth and more and more about, uh, you know, equality and these social justice initiatives and the, you know, to being able to turn as big a profit as you can. And in that, you know, just reading for the, the first few chapters, he, he discusses uh, one initiative where they created an undergraduate uh, committee to, you know, enhance the experience of undergraduates from, you know, both inside and outside the classroom. And he said right there, when you see outside the classroom, what you're seeing is doublespeak for control over, you know, all experiences uh, in, the, in the university and basically ways to marginalize professors because professors can't claim to have expertise outside the classroom. Whereas inside the classroom, they, you know, they have been able to, you know, exert a little bit more control because if you're going to come in and say, okay, we're going to change the course catalog, professors are able to say, 
well, then you should let us change it because we're the ones who know what it is that we're teaching. And we should, have a, we should be able to use our expertise in deciding what students are learning. But when they start talking about changing experiences outside the classroom, then they open it up to a, they open up a lot more room for, for exerting more control over professors in areas that they don't necessarily have the expertise. Um, you know, just a, a number of different things that they, you know, consider extracurricular activities that students should have. You know, things like creating, you know, multi-million dollar stadiums and, you know, turning, um, you know, creating little floating uh, what do they call those things? Those lazy rivers, creating like lazy rivers on campus and all those kinds of things that are, you know, just just really silly. But anyway, so they created this committee and they set it up and only, I think he said there were maybe four, four to eight actual faculty members on the committee and the rest were all administrators or students. And what they came up with for changing things inside the classroom were just a raft of platitudes about, you know, no bullying and, and making sure that if you're going to have to take finals, then you are only allowed to take finals on the week of the finals. And a number of things that really, you know, were inconsequential, just silly things that actually never, it really ended up getting enforced. But they also came up with a number of, of different things that enhanced the control of the administrators over the faculty. And a number of these things were, you know, things that were kind of, you know, more social justice oriented, more things about, you know, who can be hired, what you can be hired for, and then also creating a number of different posts, like, uh, you know, more what he calls little deanlets and deanlings that, uh, you know, can, who get to say that, you know, you, you shouldn't be allowed to say that, um, you know, so you, you know, you're, you're being censored for this, or, you know, this is a free speech zone, I'm the lord of this and the, the lord of that. So there was an, just, he, he discusses the fact that this has just been exploding to the point where, Pretty soon, you know, universities are just going to be giant administrative buildings where people just, they don't go to learn any, anything. Actually, they don't learn to think. They learn to be administrated and managered. And in the process, they learn to worship authority because authority uh, is the only one who, in the absence of critical thought and being able to, you know, solve conflict for yourself, they're the only ones who can come in and make sure that you're safe. So administrators in this picture... Are they are a prime beneficiary of things that are um, that Jonathan Haidt and Lukiana talk about in the book? The culture of safetyism, the lack of critical thinking, the you know the worship of of authorities to solve your problems. These administrators in co in college campuses in many ways are. <clears throat> Um, perhaps, you know, unwitting, but in the case, like I brought up, of the Evergreen College, uh, it seems like very conscious, very consciously utilizing this kind of ideology to enhance their power and to, to make their job more viable, to give them, you know, more reasons to, to exist. Mm -hmm. Well, so you said that that book was written in 2011, mm -hmm. the one on administrators? It was, yeah, it was published in 2011. So yeah. that was even before this latest, uh, before things really like spiraled out of control. So basically things were going down the tubes for years, and it's only been in the last four or five years that it's it's really, um, really exploded to the point where it's become obvious, like to, to practically everyone, well, except the, you know, the students who are really running the show and the administrators, but it's, it's just becoming more obvious. So I think that his kind of like disaster vision of the, you know, the future hell of universities is actually come to pass. And it's pretty much like that. I mean, you, 
um, to the point where you have pro, like a professor like Jordan Peterson who who is like a great admirer of the university as an institution who will say that you know when asked recently if um, if he thinks that uh, like higher education like university is actually worth it or if it does more damage than more harm than good he you know he hesitated for a second and said actually I think it's more at this point it's more harm than good it like universities have become that uh, that hellish nightmare of like not existing for the purpose of instilling th free thought or actually actually teaching students like young young people to think mm -hmm. to be critical it has been that they have been turned into largely um just um like a, a manu uh, like a factory a manufacturing like facility to create well like far left ac activists in in the humanities at least you know and, and i'd say um still probably it's the stem fields that have managed to avoid it uh, to the greatest degree, but even then, like you have the, the because of the, the 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 power of the administrators and of the students, it, it's even cre it's cre well, it's in it, it affects every faculty to some degree or another. So whether it's through like certain affirmative action policies or just the overarching um, like university policies that will that will apply to every every faculty, um, you can't escape it. Like even if you're in a field which um, is more apolitical, like like something like physics or mathematics or something or engineering, so, but but the <clears throat> like the, the the whole dynamic goes back. Um, well, the the whole dynamic it it like you said it goes back for for decades, but the 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 overall kind of strategy or like the way in which this is happening can uh can be traced back like over a hundred years ago with the uh, with the progressive era the rise of the progressives in american politics so this is kind of like a, a microcosm just looking at the american system but uh but these phenomena that uh Haidt and lukianov talk about are primarily in the english-speaking world so far at least that's what they focus on i don't think um i don't know do, do they in the book they don't they don't go into like any like non-english speaking um, like countries or facilities it's pretty much like the like north america uk australia new zealand um where these things are all happening um at, like now at, at the present time and s seems to be over the last four or five years but if you look at the in the in the realm of politics like back in the in the progressive era the what you what you used to have in politics in the states was everything was partisan and, and political. So you always had warring factions. You always had the like the more cons conservative and the more like uh, liberal or democratic. Um, well, you had like a left and a right wing, and one one would be in power um, from like you know local politics up to up to the federal, and then you know they'd get voted out and they'd, they everyone would be replaced. Right, it would be like a total change of the change of the guard, and then the the new party would put in put it put through their policies, and it was very like in a sense it was even more polarized than the situation today, but in a slightly different slightly different way. It was like okay, the Republicans are in power, and that meant they were in power like all over the place. They could actually do something, and then the Democrats would get in power, and it would be okay. Then now the Democrats are in power, but what happened with the rise of the progressives was they they instituted this new the like. Uh, well, a new for the Americans, this new new policy of like um, uh, it was like a statist policy of of techno technocracy is essentially what it was. It was the 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 idea that the that the nation should be run by a class of professionals, so professional economic economists, professional politicians, 
And what that meant was that when, when people like got into government, like as civil servants, they, they got in and, and they stayed for life. It was like, okay, here are the career, um, career politicians and the people that were, you know, managing all of the, all of the like institutions of, of government. And when new parties would come in power, like the, the politicians would change, but the, the people running the show, the people doing the work would stay the same. And there was an argument that that was a good thing because you needed people who actually knew what they were doing. It gave some c continuity to the process. So, um, so, you know, everyone didn't just have to, um, everyone wasn't totally replaced every however many years you know there were between all these different types of elections. So, so that's the progressive era was the the start of what what we see in the states today of this technocracy of like and and some some would call it even like a like elements of a deep state. And all I mean by that is the the professional class, the people that that are in in a in positions of like influ influ well positions of some sort of influence, some kind of influence in the government for a long period of time, and they don't go anywhere. It's like the State Department employees who are there for, you know, for life, and working under Republicans or, or Democrats um, doesn't matter. That was the, the vision of, like, a professional class um, that, that was continuous over, over time to, to provide stability and, and professionalism and, uh, um, and all, all good things. But the... Even if, but even if some of that was true, and even if some of that was a genuine intention, part of the the part of the intentions that weren't broadcast, you know, for the for public consumption was the idea that once we once we get our people in, then they can never leave, and then they'll be there for life. And so for and so this was coming from the progressive um, progressive wing, which at times was well back then was Republican actually. You know, it didn't become the Democrats for for some decades. It was the progressive, the, the, the Republican Party were, were the original, like, uh, well, not exclusively, but the Republicans were um, a progressive party um, back in this time period. And so the idea was, well, we'll get our people in, and then they can't go anywhere. So when the, the guard changes, when the new party comes in, if they, you know, if, when our party gets voted out, our guys are still there. That was part of the original motivation for this. And... So we see the same dynamic playing out in the universities, where um, you you get uh, just an increasing um, increasing like concentration of power in this like professional bureaucratic class, and in a university that's uh, like well we can see now that the the downside of of that kind of like government you know uh, uh, academic government where you have this bloated bureaucracy in the universities staffed by you know tons of administrators and the the actual professors don't get much say at all they're just railroaded by the by the administration and you get all of these like frivolous policies and just like things that sh shouldn't have anything to do with just getting an education and um so so, so you can make a like a, a comparison between the two of these, the, the the creation of these kind of like ruling classes, like new ruling classes that are technocratic in nature. It's like we we will engineer um, either society, we will engineer society to to um, in in the in the best way we see fit, um, according to our vision of what society should be, or we should engineer students and student life and university life in the way in which we in the best way in which you know in which we see fit to rule them and to shape them and mold them and what it is is what what you get is this this system of basically like it's a, it's authoritarianism of um 
the you know me i have my vision of what you should be and i'm going to to mold you into into that uh into that shape and um but you know then again like there's nothing inherently wrong with that because that's what any teacher does to a student you know um there's no way around it like you you are this un un um like misshapen mass of just like potential and i'm going me as the professor i am going to mold you into someone who can think you know ideally so if you're a mathematics professor i'm going to teach you um and mold you into a mathematician someone who knows the material and who is able to to operate freely with all of these concepts and and ideas and that arguably is a good thing. Like that's that's what education should be. It, uh, students should be molded in a certain way. But that's not really that's not what the administration uh, the administrations are doing. That's not the vision they have. They have more of a um, like a cultural and societal like um, self declared you know and and um, like self imputed role as as shapers of not not just the curriculum essentially not just not just turning you know young students into engineers or mathematicians or historians or whatever it's shaping them into something else and what we see is being what we see being shaped nowadays is um well for one like political activists um shaping people um shaping young young students into political activists but also shape like i'd say misshaping their their character and their their emotions on a level that um that can be that can be can be totally like abstracted from the um from the politics it's just if you just look at you can just look at it at like the emotional level what you have is like what lukianoff and and height call in the title of the book the coddling of the american mind they're actually what the what these administrative policies um are doing is actually creating um like a, a whole generation of of students who are like emotionally crippled in some ways like who are emotionally um, stunted, stunted, like, and not not even just stunted, because it's not it's not that they're keeping them at a level. It's they're actually introducing like aggressive, uh, yeah, re- like a, a regression, like a, a, a some kind of like sickness or pathology into into the mindset, into the character of of all these students. So it's not it's not even just like neglecting their neglecting um, like their maturation. It's actually yeah, instituting something that's anti-maturation. It's like making them even worse than little children. Well, well the thing is, uh, I think there are a few things going on here. I think the, that there is the administrative uh, element of universities that, uh, that has taken control and, um, and that is largely influencing uh, the, the very culture of their students and their thinking and their, uh, their aggression uh, through uh, different types of thinking that they're being encouraged to indulge in. I also think getting back a little bit to our show on social contagion, that uh, there, there's a kind of a, a fertile ground uh, in in the uh, in the in the thinking and in the up, upbringing of uh, of American and Western students um, that have been uh, that's been created uh, coddling. Another word for coddling is overprotection. Um, so we, we find that in the 2000s, in the advent of the use of the internet and, and technology and, and, uh, the mass amount of gaming, uh, and social media that's been introduced into the lives of students, uh, into, into children, that they've had less exposure, uh, to 
just being outside, to getting their hands dirty, to having natural interactions uh, that would that might cause a little pain, that might uh, that might cause uh, in them a uh, an experience that is negative, but that they might have grown from otherwise. Um, so you already have a, a whole uh, a whole population of of young people who who weren't exposed uh, to the types of things that say uh, the millennials, my generation, were exposed to. Um, you have this uh, um, generation, the iGen generation, as it's called, um, that I think began in the late '90s. Those those people who were born in the late '90s. Um, who are missing out on a whole kind of area of experience that um, that has kept them from growing, um, and so I don't I don't think it's I don't think this problem as we're looking at is is can be uh, fully pointed to administrators, even though that's probably a very large component of it. I do think that you have a lot of parents of this generation who have, relatively speaking, uh, probably had it. Uh, easy or easier than even their generation, the, the baby boomers in the U.S., as we call them, um, mm -hmm. children of the 50s and perhaps early 60s, uh, who have, who have um, for whatever reason, thought that the best thing that they could do for their children was to raise them coddled uh, somewhat or overprotected. Mm -hmm. And um, on one hand, it's, it's understandable because you, you want to keep your, your child... Uh, safe naturally um and you want to do everything to make sure that they're that they're not uh, injured in a in a very harmful world and in the other the the problem that um that this book is discussing is the tendency to take this uh desire to keep one safe to this uh extreme limit that that hasn't been questioned by many people it's it's become an assumption that um that keeping a child safe keeping a student safe uh, at the expense of all other experience and self-knowledge um, is, is the ultimate goal um, when it's, in fact, detrimental to the growth of an individual. And there was something from Martha Stout uh, that I reread recently that I thought was particularly to that point, and that point was that um, for somebody who experienced a traumatic event, you can have multiple ways of... Uh, viewing the world after that event. And what she found through her practice was that if you have a mindset of safetyism, as you'd say, um, where what is most important is safety and the feeling of safety, if that is of the most paramount and basic thing that you're focused on, you don't recover. And that's what she found through her practice was that the people who were like that did not recover. And I thought that was extremely interesting in light of all of this, that like you were saying, Harrison, it's, it's more than regressive. It's way worse than that because you're, you're instilling something that's going to make you not only less resilient, but incapable of resiliency. Well, that, that's another major point of the book, Adam. And it's exactly right. In cognitive, cogni cognitive <laughs> <laughs> behavioral therapy, uh, you know, there's an approach to trauma, which uh, which it's been learned. Um, if you expose uh, someone to their past traumas 
in a limited but um, but perpetual way, uh, what you do is you create in the person a a kind of exposure to it where they can learn to deal with it cognitively. They're not ignoring it and they're not shunting it away. This was a valid experience for, for them, but the therapy provides an opportunity to reframe in their minds and in their emotions uh, what that experience means or what it could mean. Um, so there were three great untruths that, um, that Haight and Lukianov uh, bring out in the, in the earlier part of the book, I think, that inform a lot of why education in particular is going in the wrong direction. And these are untruths that are being instilled and forced upon students uh, without their knowing it. The untruth of fragility, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, uh, which is a play on uh, Nietzsche's statement, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. The untruth of emotional reasoning, always trust your feelings. Don't, que don't question your feelings. Uh, don't question why you're responding or reacting to something. And the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people, which tends to paint things in very black and white terms and, and doesn't ask that the individual question the darkness in their own heart, which is you know, one of the main points that Peterson is, has been trying to hammer away at in the minds of people. You have to see it in yourself, uh, and you, you, you can't um, continue to project upon others a... Uh, negative values and negative intentions all the time, or, or you're, you're making enemies out of everyone. Um, so he also just continues that while many propositions are untrue, in order to be classified as a great untruth, an idea must meet three criteria. One, it contradicts ancient wisdom, ideas found widely in the wisdom literature of many cultures. Um, number two, it contradicts modern psychological research on well-being. And three, it harms the individuals and communities who embrace it. So uh, in this way, he, he, the authors frame much the rest of the book in saying that, um, that these great untruths that are informing all of the, the teaching and instruction of students uh, and of parenting, pretty much, uh, the untruth of, you know, fragility, uh, emotional reasoning, and this black and white us versus them thinking has, has totally warped uh, a whole generation of, of students or a large percentage of them, as we can see. Um, so I thought it was a wonderful way to, to, to frame what it is that we're, uh, what it is we, we've been looking at in, uh, in this whole generation of students who are off the hook, batshit crazy, and reacting to everything um, as as though it were a microaggression or a, a major aggression or a, or or something meant to uh, to put them down and, and keep them um, uh, from growing. Yeah, I just just back in regards to the university, you're talking about the students going crazy. Uh, I wanted to read a passage from the book where they say that, uh, quote, when the Federal Office of Education 
began collecting data in 1869, there were only 63,000 students enrolled in higher education institutions throughout the United States. They represented just 1% of all 18 to 24-year-olds. Today, an estimated 20 million students are enrolled in American higher education, including roughly 40% of all 18 to 24-year-olds. In the 2015 to 2016 school year, the most recent year for which statistics are available, combined revenues at U.S. post-secondary institutions totaled about $548 billion. A country with that GDP, to give a sense of scale, would rank 21st between Argentina and Saudi Arabia. Then to go on to write, even at public universities, 18-year-olds are purchasing what is essentially a luxury product. Is it any wonder they feel entitled to control the experience? Students, accustomed to authoring every facet of their college experience, now want their institutions to mirror their views. If the customers can determine the curriculum and select all their desired amenities, it stands to reason that they should also determine which speakers ought to be invited to campus and what opinions can be articulated in their midst. For today's students, one might say, speakers are amenities. You know, these, uh, they are, they're purchasing for $60,000 a year a luxury experience at a place where you get, um, you know, you, you, you'll, you'll pay it off over the course of the rest of your life or you won't, but you get to hang out with your friends. You're, you're doing drugs, you're drinking alcohol, you're skipping class. Maybe you're going to class, but you know, when you go to class, if you don't, if you don't feel like you, you know, you should get a certain grade, you can complain about it to your, whoever, you know, somebody who's there to stand up for your right to pass no matter what, based on your skin color or gender or sexual orientation. And, you know, you can get people fired for, you know, giving you a bad grade and you can, you, you basically are just, you're paying for this vacation after high school and you're spending the next four years of your life, a lot of people at least, um, just accruing a massive amount of debt on, on a little mini vacation, this luxury experience. And I think it speaks really to the culture that we've created that it doesn't seem that strange you know i mean i'm thinking animal house going way back you know it you know it's it's there you know but clearly it think over time all of these different conditions have started to play into the experience of you know growing into adulthood and the university when you have 40 percent of the population you know going through this um then you know it's it's probably pretty important to monitor what exactly you know is what exactly are we teaching? And when you, but when you like factor in what we were talking about with the fall of the faculty, the rise of administration, the rise of the culture of safetyism, the rise of safe spaces, the rise of not wanting to be, you know, have your your sacred cows challenged in any way, and seeing it as almost a you know like your fundamental right not to be disturbed whatsoever, you. You're just going into this dream world for four years, and then they're and you're coming out into society. So, as you know, the Haidt and Lukianov point out, this these ideas are fundamentally crippling an entire generation, and not only crippling them, but the combination of those three bad ideas. What were they? The the untruth of us versus them, the untruth of fragility, and the untruth of emotional reasoning. Reasoning are when you combine all of those, that whatever you feel is true. So if somebody offends me, I feel that you're a bad person. You're evil. That means you're evil. So you're, when you are inculcating this type of reasoning into a generation, then you're setting up the seeds for a massive conflict 
between not just them, but you know, you know, between them on campus, between them on in their political spectrum. You know, there's been plenty of people like Eric Weinstein and others on the left who have been attacked um, and driven off campus just because they hold. You know, they're supposedly in the in the same camp, but you know, they don't hold the right view. And if I feel you don't hold the right view, then you're an evil person. And since life is a battle between good and evil, then I'm justified in doing whatever it takes in order to eradicate you. When you're inculcating all these ideas into children and, you know, and then they're turning into adults, you're setting up, you know, just the potential for never-ending conflict, especially if it's not challenged in any, in any really reasonable and rational way by, you know, administrators who, who are, first and foremost, their primary job is to keep the cash cow, to keep the cash flowing. They're not going to, you know, kill the goose that laid the golden egg. And, you know, in this kind of that market, uh, market driven culture where the customer is always right, they're just going to keep feeding into it, feeding it, feeding it, whatever you want, whatever you say, you want to be safe. I support that's so brave of you to say that you want to be safe no matter what. You're so courageous. You're so, social justice for everyone. You're, you know, here's your badge. Here's your reward. Here's your diploma, whatever you want. Now, you know, just make sure that you just keep on paying thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year. But yeah, those all those elements uh, combined really are you know they 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 just they made the book such such a worthwhile read because it's not an easy it's not an easy topic to really digest. You know, it's not like you were saying, Alon. It's not just these coddled kids. It's not just, you know, administrators. It's not just the political, you know, the left on politics. It's not just this recent generation. It's a whole bunch of different aspects of the story that need to be untangled and, you know, and really looked at in their historical setting. And I think they, the guys do a really fantastic job on that in the book. And I would, I would highly recommend it for anybody who's just curious about why it is that, you know, that we're seeing, that we were seeing in, you know, 2017, this giant explosion, why it seemed like there was just this explosion of chaos on the universities. Well, as we've been discussing, you know, there was a lot of this stuff has been going on for a long time. Like these three ideas that we, the, that we mentioned, you can see seeds of them, you know, throughout the last, you know, century, you know, the, the century of the self, so to speak. And all of this idea that the cu- customer is always right. And that, you know, that hedonism, you know, that feeling right, feeling good is like the ultimate thing. I just want my kids to have it better than I did. As long as they're happy, as long as somebody's happy, you know, all of this kind of self-centered emotional type thinking um, has been feeding into this for years. Mm-hmm. And the, the problem, of course, is that when you have a belief, like a deeply held belief that doesn't match up with reality, it ends up smacking you in the face, right? So when you have a, a view of reality that doesn't jive with reality, you're not, like, your actions aren't going to work you know, in the world. You're going to make poor choices and you're not going to get what you expect. So it's a it's a it's a cycle that that just gets worse as it cycles because the more you expect something the more that you the more that you try to force the world into your image of what you want for for it and for yourself the the more it's not going to live up to those that that vision you have in your head and the more it's going to fight back and the angrier you're going to get and the harder you're going to try to to force fit it until there's a, like this conflagration and until something just breaks right so that's 
that's kind of how they came into this in the first place. Like the story behind the book is that um, Greg came to Jonathan, you know, um, Jonathan Haidt, with this idea relating like what 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 was happening in the uh, in the universities with what he knew about cognitive behavioral therapy, and like what he saw was that they, they, the 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 universities seemed to be doing things completely backwards, like they were worried about about these microaggressions and trauma, and they, they were concerned about the safety of their students, and yet the, the policies and the, like, the decisions they were making were actually the wrong ones, like diametrically opposed to what should be done. So in cognitive behavioral therapy, like you were saying, Alon, like the, the, the strategy for, for dealing with something traumatic is not to, um, not to reinforce the belief that you're being like that you're a victim, that you're being traumatized, not to close yourself off from any kind of like negative stimuli. It's to slowly expose yourself to more and more of the, un- of the uncomfortable stimuli so that you, that you, so that you gain, um, like, I don't, I don't like the world, but I don't like the word, but like resilience, you gain some, like some armor to it. You gain, you, you, you grow from it. Like you, you become stronger. And the, 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 the first untruth is actually to make, to, to reinforce the weakness of of people of of children and to to reinforce the the victim mentality and to, and that what that actually does is it makes them weaker it makes them less able to to um to deal with traumatic experiences and we're not even talking about traumatic experiences mm-hmm. like they one of the things they talk about is this concept creep and how how words are have uh, words have changed their meanings like over time how trauma used to mean what trauma used to mean was like physical trauma and then came the the more emotional trauma, like the like the, that can come about um, <clears throat> through through an experience. So how was it? An, an experience that like anyone you th- that you would reasonably expect anyone to have like a, a very bad reaction to. Now trauma can be just having your feelings hurt. When uh, that it, well, it's total nonsense. But the what you end up having is these these um, kind of pathological beliefs and uh, thoughts and feelings that are reinforced and that only end up getting worse by the, by the process, um, the, the process of, of these, these policies like safe spaces and, and reactions to microaggressions. But um, just on that subject, I want to read the first part of chapter two um, on emotional, re- uh, emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. So the Haidt and Lukianov write, Imagine you're a sophomore in college. It's midwinter, and you've been feeling blue and anxious. You attach no stigma to seeing a psychotherapist, so you take advantage of the campus counseling services to see if talking through your issues will help. You sit down with your new therapist and tell him how you've been feeling lately. He responds, Oh, wow. People feel very anxious when they're in great danger. Do you feel very anxious sometimes? This realization that experiencing anxiety means you are in great danger is making you very anxious right now. You say yes. The therapist answers, oh no, then you must be in very great danger. You sit in silence for a moment, confused. In your past experience, therapists have helped you question your fears, not amplify them. The therapist adds, have you experienced anything really nasty or difficult in your life? Because I should also warn you that experiencing trauma makes you kind of broken, and you may be that way for the rest of your life. He briefly looks up from his notepad. Now, since we know you're in grave danger, let's discuss how you can hide. As your anxiety mounts, you realize that you've made a terrible mistake coming to see this therapist. Because that's essentially what, um, what this whole worldview is doing. 
It's teaching these students that they are in grave danger all the time, that they're totally, totally right in their reaction to the world, that, oh, yes, no, you, you, that, that was everything, all these things that you don't like are wrong and they're putting you in danger and you have to shield yourself from them. You can't expose yourself to the slightest bit of potential danger because that might break you for good and you might, and you might be that way for the rest of your life. And the, but the problem is that that, that very process, by, by doing that, by instilling that belief, you are breaking that person potentially for life. It's going to be much more difficult for them to, to, to grow and to, to place their experiences in a wider context and, to, and just to realize where they're wrong. Because that's, prim- that's one of the... I'd say that would be... I think that's the primary purpose of like university. Um, regardless of what faculty you're in, regardless of what career you're, you're, you're going in, you need to learn how to realize when you're wrong. Because when you go and you start learning something, and you and you don't know like the the stuff like no one goes into a like a calculus class for the first time and knows calculus, right? It's just absurd. You have to learn it, and like uh, and math is a really easy, easy example because there are there are very precise ways to do things right, and then everything else is wrong. So you've got a, a very clear standard on what's right and wrong. But there, are, but there. So while the standards in other departments might not be as clear, the same concept applies. That you don't know anything. There are all kinds of things that you believe that you think you know that you're actually wrong about. You have to be able to question that. Now you might be right about some things, but you have to be open to the possibility that you're wrong, and you have to be you have to be able and willing to admit when you're wrong in order to. To, to grow in order to, to actually learn something. You can't learn something if you're convinced that you're already right about everything and nothing will change your mind. But that's what, uh, that's what, that's what these policies are doing, is convincing these children that they already know everything that's right and that there's nothing that can, anyone can say to change their mind because they know, because their feelings are right, because, they, they trust, because they're being encouraged to trust their feelings. So... Um, uh, just a couple more quotes from here. Like they point out that, um, well, they they have a list of common cognitive distortions. So these are the kinds of things that cognitive behavioral therapy is designed to help with. Like the, the, they're basically signs that something's going wrong in your mind, in your like in your thoughts and your emotions. Something's not quite going right. So CBT is there to kind of get you back on track to 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 catch yourself out when you're engaging in these cognitive distortions to to try to lead and live a better life to try to to try to grow to, to try to become uh, like a bit of a better functioning human being and like they list just some of them like emotional reasoning catastrophizing overgeneralizing dichotomous thinking or black and white thinking mind reading labeling negative filtering discounting positives blaming so they go into detail in all of these but these are all things that students are being encouraged to do and and when you like when you see the um like the things that the students will say like there's one example here where there's a like a facebook message that uh that one student left in response to to um i think it was the invitation for um was it sue venker venkner venkner venker to to come speak at a at a university event yeah so they invited sue venker who's like a, an anti-feminist um writer conservative critic of feminism and advocate of traditional gender roles and so uh they quote one student uh, wrote on a facebook page 
When you bring a misogynistic, white supremacist, men's rights activist to campus in the name of dialogue and the other side, you are not only causing mental, social, psychological, and physical harm to students, but you are also paying for the continued dispersal of violent ideologies that kill our black and brown trans femme sisters. No, you are dipping your hands in blood, Zach Wood. Zach Wood was the, um, the guy that invited her to come speak, I believe. So, so uh, Lukianov and the height respond to that uh, right after. This response clearly illustrates the cognitive distortions of catastrophizing, labeling, overgeneralizing, and dichotomous thinking. It is also a textbook example of emotional reasoning. Um, and that's, like, when I first read that response, I was just like, oh, yeah, no, that's typical. Like, I've seen, I've seen countless comments exactly like that everywhere. In YouTube comments, on Facebook, in articles. I've seen entire articles written in that, in, in that exact language. Yeah. And it is just one cognitive distortion after the other. It's, it's just an, an entire, like, mashup of cognitive distortions. There's no content in it whatsoever. There's nothing in it that's even remotely correct. Um, like there might be like one seed of an idea that is a real idea, but that does, doesn't have any relation to what the, like the person is actually talking about or trying to convey. It's just totally unrelated. It's not even wrong. And, um, so on this subject, they're talking about critical thinking. And this gets back to what I was saying about like the, what I think the primary purpose of like an education should be, um, like uh, Lukianov and Haidt, right? It is not acceptable for a scholar to say, you have shown me convincing evidence that my claim is wrong, but I still feel that my claim is right, so I'm sticking with it. Right. Like, people do that all the time. Like, even scholars do that all the time. Like, it's not easy to change your opinion when, when presented with evidence that you're wrong. But at least, like, you should have the, like, the self-awareness to... to to, um, to realize that that's a bad thing. So that's what scholars will often do. They'll come up with rationalizations, like academics will do this, rationalizations for why they think they're right. But they won't just admit, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's good evidence, but I'm going to believe what I believe anyways, even if I'm wrong. It's like, that's not, like, at least people, at least some academics have the decency to try to, to try to like rationalize themselves into the, into like convincing themselves that they're thinking critically. That's one step above um, just, not having any regard for critical thinking whatsoever, um, at least in my mind. Well, so what you're talking about, Harrison, I think is motivated reasoning. Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, the, the, the problem here is that people don't even realize that, uh, that they're motivated uh, to reason a certain way to defend their position. Mm -hmm. uh, they're so identified with their position because they're encouraged to think emotionally about their position that there is no critical distance, there's no metacognition or, or thinking about their thinking. And uh, this is also a, uh, just a huge failure of education in the West. You're not taught to think about the way that you think. Um, another, another point, though I don't think they use the term, is interpersonal communication. Uh, we're not instructed on, on what civil uh, discourse uh, having a discussion with someone that you might disagree with might look might look like you're you're encouraged rather to fly off the handle and react emotionally to someone that you perceive as hurting your feelings, and that becomes the sole criteria from which to to respond in any way. And this is really it's 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 become institutionalized. Uh, in another chapter in the book called Microaggressions, The Triumph of Impact Over Intent. Um, this, this bit is quite interesting. They write, 
a prime example of how some professors and some administrators encourage mental habits similar to the cognitive distortions is, is their promotion of the concept of, quote, microaggressions. Popularized in a 2007 article by Daryl Wing Sue, a professor at Columbia University's teacher college, Sue and several colleagues defined microaggressions as, quote, brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that, commu that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults towards people of color, end quote. The term was first applied to people of color, but is now applied much more broadly. Many people from historically marginalized groups continue to face frequent acts of bias and prejudice. Sometimes people make thinly veiled, bigoted remarks, and in cases where the speaker is expressing hostility or contempt, it seems appropriate to call it aggression. If the aggressive act is minor or subtle, then the term, quote, microaggression, end quote, seems well-suited for the situation. But aggression is not unintentional or accidental. If you bump into someone by accident and never meant them any harm, it is not an act of aggression, although the other person may misperceive it as one. Unfortunately, when Sue in included, quote, unintentional, end quote, slights, and when he defined the slights entirely in terms of the listener's interpretation, he encouraged people to make such misperceptions. He encouraged them to engage in emotional reasoning, to start with their feelings and then justify those feelings by drawing the conclusion that someone has committed an act of aggression against them. Those feelings do sometimes point to a correct inference, and it is important to find out whether an acquaintance feels hostility or contempt toward you. But it is not a good idea to start by assuming the worst about people and reading their actions as uncharitably as possible. This is the distortion known as mind reading. If done habitually and negatively, it is likely to lead to despair, anxiety, and a network of damaged relationships, which is part of the reason why we right now uh, see this iGen uh, group of, of young people uh, one of the most depressed, dysfunctional, uh, sad, uh, uh, medicated groups of, of uh, people in generations. Yeah, well, well that's, that's, a, that's one of the problems, too, is that this, that generation has gone through this pipeline, you know, like a pre-political pipeline. Um, you know, their childhood, they, they were spent, they spent a lot of their childhood not, in, not engaging in the same kinds of things that other children of previous generations really got a, a chance to, you know, partake in. Mostly because this iGen, which was born, I think, around 1995, and we're really coming of age, like 2012, 2013, going to school, they were, they were the generation that got exposed to, to iPhones, to Facebook, to constant social media presence. And like you were saying, like, the, the depression and anxiety has just gone through the roof, especially for girls, because when they're on Facebook and they're seeing pictures of, you know, parties that they weren't invited to or they were, you know, they're being made fun of or bullied, all the different kinds of things that happen to kids. Well, they don't they don't really get a chance to escape it because it's on social media. It's on the Internet. Everybody can see it They're You know, to be bullied can be, you know, you can get just mobbed hor horrifically. 
um, and, and just a day by a, just a, a whole flash mob of, of kids who don't even, who don't know better. They're just, you know, oh, that's funny. Ha ha ha. Her hair's ugly, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're not, they're kids. They're not engaging in critical thinking, but everyone, you know, they're just acting like a school of fish, just, you know, doing whatever the, the group is doing, whatever the group considers cool. And so, you know, they were, they, they were programmed by, by that kind of an experience. And, and as, uh, as they point out in the book, you know, for the upper class kids, they didn't get a chance to to play. They didn't get a chance to wire their brains in in the kind of way that involves, you know, give and take, playing with other kids, learning how to, you know, how to be liked, how to play the game, you know, how not to just say, no, these are my rules. You have to play my game, you know, because when you do that, the kids are like, ah, I don't care. You know, we're, we're going to play our game. You can play or not. You know, you have to learn how to interact you know, in order to, you know, to 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 have a, a fun time because that's the goal. Everybody wants to have fun. It's a little bit scary. You're, you know, you're playing tag. You know, you're doing crazy stuff, but you're learning how to play, get along with people and setting up skills that will last you for most of your life. But for the upper class kids, they had the upper uh, or the helicopter parents who were like from day one, they're like, OK, so now how is my kid going to get into Yale? You know, there's just so much competition out there. We're going to plan every single day of their life and so, so that they have all of these extracurriculars, they have all these grades. And, you know, the surveys show that the kids feel extremely stressed, extremely worried about their future. They don't get a chance to engage in all the different other kinds of activities that kids should, that kids need in order to become, you know, functioning adults. And then, you know, when, by the time they get out of high school and they're going to college, shoot, maybe they need a vacation. Maybe they need $60,000 a year spent. But even in college, you know, they're still facing all this competition, all this pressure in order to succeed. And, you know, for the lower class kids, you know, the ones who, you know, they're, they, uh, they're facing a lot of this anxiety and a lot of this depression and rates of suicide are going up. And they don't have the, you know, they, they also don't have the exact same amount of experiences for, for whatever reason, just that culture that we've been talking about, the culture of safetyism, the fact that if you're a parent, you can get arrested for letting your kid walk down the street. You know, there's just a, a paranoid atmosphere about what a child could or could not do that didn't exist, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And all of these dynamics, they, uh, they are being when they, by the time they come into college and they read and they get articles like that Daryl Wing Sue's racial microaggressions in everyday life, you know they're 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 primed to you know they've already they they're they're, they're struggling with mental illness. They have these negative thoughts, these negative thought patterns that are you know just enhanced by social media and and not a, a, and no real clear way of learning how to you know think critically because obviously. Schools don't teach cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and so they they you know they get indoctrinated into this this way of thinking that says you know you know you feel bad and that's true you know that's the truth you have to embrace your your trauma embrace your you know the all of the the pain that's been done to you and 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 now we're going to tell you you know why it is that you feel all this horrible nonsense and and especially for you know minority groups like. For, for example, uh, Daryl Wing Su lists the following examples of microaggressions that uh, that that you should expect to face in the world. He writes, uh, 
For example, one's racial identity can be minimized or made insignificant through the sheer exclusion of decorations or literature that represents various racial groups. So now you go into your professor's office and he doesn't have any decorations of your racial group in there. Now, are you going to now any normal person would not possibly even consider that that is a, a, a slight against you, but now you're being told that you need to see that as a slight and you need mm-hmm. to take action. It's, and I'm sure that you know, there have been plenty of people who have because it's seen as a, you know, you've been victimized by the lack of decorations in a room. And that he continues, micro insults represent subtle snubs frequently unknown to the perpetrator, but clearly convey a hidden insulted message to the recipient of color. When a white employer tells a prospective candidate of color, I believe the most qualified person should get the job regardless of race. So believing in the content of character (laughs) rather than the color of skin is racism. It's 180 degrees from what racism is. Mm -hmm. It's 180 degrees. So you're telling these, you know, you're programming these kids. And because this is a, you know, frequently cited article, this is, this is a very big idea. The idea of microaggressions, you know, this, the whole thing rests on, uh, on believing that someone who isn't racist is racist, Mm -hmm. that actually people who aren't racist are racist. Yeah. That, yeah, so Martin, Lu- Martin, Lu- Martin Luther King Jr. was a racist. He was you know, the biggest racist of them about, all. You know, the importance of character. And th- that's the point, is that like a statement like that um, will oftentimes, well, like Lukianoff and Haidt point out, a lot of these comments can be used as like intentionally, um, s- intentional like micro slights and, and aggressions, you know, um, against, um, you know, certain minorities or whatever. Like I think we've all seen examples of that. If you know the 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 you know the the racist uncle that you've got that will just make little comments here and there. Maybe it's like you know you've got a you you bring your girlfriend home and she's black or you know vice versa, and you know you know your your uncle makes some kind of snide comment, right? Just little uh, like uh, under the breath, you know, just throws it out there, and like that stuff does happen. Of course, so that's the point that they're making. Yeah, this stuff does happen, but the the concept has been enlarged and the the impact has been enlarged to such an extent as to blow it way out of proportion so you've got someone like an employer who might say well i i believe that uh, the person who you know who who does the job best should get the job you know the person most qualified regardless of race and that most likely like i'd say most likely if someone's saying that it's not because they're a racist it's because they believe that a minority should get the job if they're qualified it's like they're saying no i don't believe in in like in not hiring people because of their race. I think that, you know, if if you as a black person or an Asian person are the most qualified, you should get the job mm-hmm. because I don't care what color your skin is. And that anti-racist sentiment is actually, like you said, Corey, is now seen as racism and it's encouraged to see that as racism. So um, like one of the things they say when they're talking about uh, Sue's article, um, like by Sue's logic, they, they write that CBT itself can be a microaggression. Because it it actually questions the premises of why you're you know feeling the way you're feeling, why you're you might feel slighted. So, for example, Sue gives the example of a therapist asking asking a client, "Do you really think your problem stems from racism?" 
<clears throat> so depending on the therapist's intention, such a question could indeed be improperly dismissive, but if the intention of the therapist is to help the client talk back to his emotions, search for evidence to justify interpretations, and find the realistic appraisal of events that will lead to the most effective functioning in a world full of ambiguities, then the question may very well be appropriate and constructive. Teaching people to see more aggression in ambiguous interactions, take more offense, feel more negative emotions, and avoid questioning their initial interpretations strikes us as unwise, to say the least. It is also contrary to the usual goals of good psychotherapy. And then a couple pages later, um, they write just quite simply, if someone wanted to create an environment of perpetual anger mm -hmm. and intergroup conflict, this would be an effective way to do it. Yes. But I thought that was a terrific line and uh you know there's a an, another part in the book where they're talking about how um speakers at universities were disin they've, they've always yeah. been disinvited by by groups on the left and the right over years and um there have been certain groups that have kept track of the number of speakers that have been disinvited mm -hmm. and sometimes the the conservative uh faction of of students um, disinvited some speakers because well, it's they usually, took offense to them. But it's usually not the students. Like they pointed out, it's when it's conservatives that disinvite people, it's usually an external group like a, like a, like a church group or like an, so an anti-abortion or um, like group that's external to the university that's usually the person, the, the group that's pushing for the disinvitation yes. for the, on the part of conservatives. So, yeah. so it could be right. So on, on that side, it, would, it might more often be this, uh, this you know, organization outside of the university um and and what they point out is there was a really strong divergence around i think they said 2014 yeah where where the numbers of disinvitations uh for speakers at universities uh blew up like 10 times on the side of the left mm -hmm. so um you know you 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 said a moment ago harrison you quoted the uh that line about you know if if we were socially engineering um, uh, people to for for maximum anger and strife and and conflict. This would be the way to do it. You know, there there is something going on that has just kind of blown up uh, in the past few years. Uh, that number of disinvitations, which which outnumbers conservative disinvitations um, by by many fold in 2014, is another indicator of just how we've entered this kind of new paradigm of, of thinking and, uh, and, and reactivity uh, just in recent years. And it reminds me of how just a few, just a couple of years ago when all of this, this kind of thinking was, was really coming out in the news in a big way, it's like, it's bizarre. I mean, I, I grew up in, uh, I'm a child of the 70s and the 80s, and uh, it, it's like, waking up to a whole new reality. I, 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 I'm not sure I can describe it in any other way. Uh, and this is someone who, as I've said on this show several times before, has always been kind of left-leaning. Um, but uh, it, the, we've reached some kind of tipping point and turning point uh, where all of these uh, social forces have, have, uh, or social engineering forces, if that's what they are, uh, because they, they don't, they might seem arbitrary on on some levels, and 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 maybe they are organic in some ways, but in other ways, uh, it, 
how can a how can a whole generation go so wrong? I you know this isn't we don't have a, a you know we had Obama who might be considered a kind of a leader of the left who who propagated a, a lot of these ideas even though according to the book he was a proponent of of not thinking uh, in a reactive way. Uh, you know he liked one of these essays that was written on on this phenomena. But then he would go on talk shows and and kind of you know claim Putin was homophobic or or betray this uh, this sentiment by by taking the lead in um, in this type of reactionary thinking and egging it on. But even he wasn't that powerful. So uh, I don't know if this is a question that that can even be answered. But what the hell is going on? It it's it's too it's very big <laughs> it's, and awful. Well, I, I really enjoyed the part in their book where they talk about the the kind of imprinting window that exists for when between the ages of 14 to 24, I believe, uh, for individuals to become uh, polit- politically, uh, like they get their, their political compass set during that period of time. And, there, and there's that, ten, the, it peaks at the age of 18. And, you know, the events that occur in that window can really predict what kind of, you know, policies and individuals you'll vote for, um, you know, for the rest of your life. And for this generation um, that were coming of age and going to college, you know, the, the things that they were experiencing were the financial crisis. That was one that was one big thing. And, you know, a lot of the media about the evil, corrupt uh, bankers stole all of our money and, you know, nobody's going to do anything about it. Um, which, you know, is true. <laughs> and, uh, for, well, I mean, it's, it's not too far off the mark, but then you had the, you know, the, was the Trayvon Martin shooting, the George Zimmerman shooting, you know, black lives matter. Occupy wall street was a big thing. Had a lot of press, the election of the first black president, you know, Barack Obama, you had, uh, and I mean, of, of course on the left of the spectrum, you know, throughout that time, there was there was a, still a lot of uh, pushback against the illegal invasion of the Iraq War, you know the um, 9/11 and all of the aftermath, all of that stuff that I think really separate really started the polarization going full steam because at that point there was really I mean there was just this sense that you know between the anti-war left and the right there was no way you could ever agree that you know it was right to invade Iraq and to just begin invading countries and you know and but then over time you know people have such short memories they just for they just forgot about it and just re- probably just remember they just hate people on the right so then when Obama's like let's go blow up Libya yeah Obama'll do it you know that's our man he's you know they just so tribal people are just tribal like that they don't even know why they get triggered or programmed in certain ways but then they just function on those on those programs, regardless of whether it's rational or not. So I think that a lot of these kids, like we were saying, that you know, there's a pipeline that they're 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 going down. They're being programmed in certain ways, and the time that they were coming of age and they're you know really seeing things politically and maybe getting interested in politics, maybe wanting to know how they can impact the world. They were you know they were um, the that was when the, that social justice was really starting to take that you know, the, um, really starting to take the center stage, you know, really starting to get, become more radical, getting more radicalized in terms of 
what they were willing to do, you know, how evil the, you know, the genociding whites were. And it was, there's just all those little twists, you know, it's like America invaded Iraq, Afghanistan, they're going to war and all these things. And, you know, for some people you're like, yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's evil. But they're like, no, it's white people that are doing that. You know, the white people, white men are responsible for the evil. The white men are oppressing the Muslims and the people of color all, all over the world. And so there's all these twists that are going on and, the left, uh, for whatever reason, just decided, like, yeah, let's just go with it. Let's not try and correct our thinking whatsoever. Let's not try and, and engage in constructive solutions to these problems. Let's go completely radically insane and put on uh, our black hoodies and go beat up old men in the streets in Portland. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, that was that was their, their way of, of reasoning, which actually gets back to what they, you know, these, these untruths of emotional reasoning and all of the, all of the, thinking errors that I, I just wanted to go through some of them because I think they're so accurate in terms of understanding why the left right now doesn't is making no absolutely no sense like for one of them the nine of the most common ones were like you pointed out Harrison one was emotional reasoning letting your feelings guide your interpretation of reality so I feel offended therefore you know I have to I have to react I need to and therefore get, you, therefore you are evil right yeah you did something bad because i feel offended yeah you did something bad you're oppressing me somehow you must be i feel offended Catas uh, catastrophizing focusing on the worst possible outcome and seeing it as most likely donald trump is going to kill all the babies <laughs> donald trump is creating concentration camps that's guaranteed donald trump is hitler guaranteed you're like well, I guess it's possible you could try and become a Hitler, but then, you know, you're like, what, what am I really arguing with here? Because it's possible for anything. Well, what you're arguing with is a thinking error, just a catastrophic thinking error. Overgeneralizing, perceiving a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. You know, this, uh, what is it? Perceiving a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. So a cop kills uh, a black man. All cops are racist pigs. They're all pigs. They're all out to kill us. You're like... Well, that's just overgeneralizing completely. Dichotomous thinking, black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking. You know, that, uh, you know, that's like the, their example is I get rejected by everyone or it was a complete waste of time. Obviously, other ways of being, you know, black and white thinker are just that you, that tr their group is all evil. We're all good, no matter what. Mind reading, assuming that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts microaggressions i mean can you think like that's micro all the microaggressions are right there he's actually racist against me because he didn't put decorations in his in the doctor's office you know the doctor is a secret racist because it's so sterile in there it's just it's horrible and putin wants to take over the world of course <laughs> absolutely then labeling assigning global negative traits to yourself or others often in the service of dichotomous thinking you know they're white supremacists they're all racist they're all they're all evil scumbags. There's no talking to them. It's impossible. Negative filtering. Focus exclusively on the negatives. Genocide. The history of genocide. History of oppression. History of this. History of that. That's all, you've, that's all that has happened in the history of the world is genocide and oppression. Nothing else ever happened. And, uh, and blaming. Focusing on the other person is the source of all negative feelings. You know, my oppressor caused all my problems. My parents caused all my problems. The patriarchy caused all of my problems. I mean, all of those cognitive distortions, uh, you know, that are treated by psychologists, you know, 
this is like what you're seeing is just you're seeing a, a pathological disorder like just running rampant mm-hmm. just because you know in cbt they're called cognitive distortions but we've talked about it before that you know previously psychologists um you know criminal like forensic psychologists called them the criminal mind can't remember the name of the author of that book of the now. same now yeah mm-hmm. there's entire books on on how this is how criminals think mm-hmm. this is pretty much just step by step how the the criminal deranged you know feverish looking for another dose and robbing somebody thinks uh thinks in this way so this mm-hmm. is the kind of you know this is what they're channeling in in their um pursuit in, the, in their movement yeah so Corey, you made a, a point a few minutes ago that i think is worth um going back to for just a moment. And that is you had these legitimate anti-war marches and movements in the early 2000s during the uh, Bush, uh, George W. Bush administration. You had uh, tens of thousands of people marching in New York, Washington, D.C., who could see through the bullshit that was the reason for going into Iraq after 9-11, you know, the whole WMD thing. And, and it just seems as though, uh, and this I, I think is, is a great point you were making, all of that energy and awareness that would have otherwise been mobilized by the left uh, and even by middle-of-the-road people who have a decent sense of what's right and wrong in the world and, and what our country is responsible for in the U.S., um, has been siphoned off, redirected, uh, subverted, twisted, you use the word, uh, out of all recognition, where now when we do all of these horrible things around the world in, in, in supporting Saudi Arabia and Yemen and uh, in bolstering um, uh, our efforts in Afghanistan to, to perpetuate that war, what Obama in Libya a few years ago, what the U.S. has been supportive of in, in Syria, none of that really has reached a kind of national consciousness or, or conscience that has that has moved people enough to go out in the streets and say this is god awful uh and we're responsible for it and we don't want it anymore so so all of that energy all of that uh thought um all, all of that intention that might have otherwise gone into um bringing awareness and protesting against against these very legitimate horrors uh, that, that the U.S. is responsible for, are now, have been turned into, uh, you hurt me because I say you hurt me. <laughs> uh, so I, you know, and that's a real, uh, whether, whether intentional or not, you know, we talked about social engineering a little bit ago, whether intentional or not, it's a feat. It's a magician's act. Of of uh, of gigantic proportions that that people are no longer uh, keeping their eye on the ball of of what is truly you know some horrific things that that the U.S. is doing in the name of freedom and democracy around the world. Well, um, maybe one last thread to untangle before we end the show for today. Um, getting back to um, what you were saying, Corey, about the well, you listed all of these, all of these cognitive distortions, and then tied it to the criminal mind, right? Well, I want to bring in something from Political Ponderology by Andrew Lobachevsky. 
Uh, he talks about um, basically the psychopathic mindset, which is essentially you know a form of the criminal mind, probably at its most pure form in its most pure form, um, the psychopathic mentality. And what Lobachevsky talks about in Ponderology is how in a pathocracy, so in a system of government like ruled completely by like the psychopathic element of society, they have this vision of um, it is a social engineering vision of basically um, forming the the masses like the 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 ninety nine percent into like, their psychopathic mentality, and they think they'll get away with it. They think they can achieve this through like indoctrination and um, 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 like terror and the the just these means of like pedagogy of education that they that they have to to turn people into psychopaths but the point that lobachevsky makes is that doesn't work it never works like they they may um they may have some effect on a small percentage of the population but those are usually the people who who have existing like personality disorders um like you know lifelong um personality structures that are amenable to this kind of persuasion but the vast majority of people don't react like that. They don't change. They, in fact, stay human. And what actually happens is that they, they end up being traumatized. Um, so this would be in the, the, the more traditional view of, of trauma. It's like they, they do end up suffering from a kind of PTSD from, from like thought terrorization and real terror, terror like torture and, and um, you know, killings. Um, the, the kind of stuff that, um, you know, that drug cartels do like that has a, that has a, a, um, a deep like traumatic effect on the human psyche and not just to those who are victims, let's say of torture or who have their, you know, who have uh, a family member who gets kidnapped and tortured and killed. Um, but to the people just in the community, there is a, there is a, a, a traumatizing effect of living, of living with the, those possibilities surrounding you. And, and so there, so, so there is um, a, a kind of creation of neurosis and, and trauma in in the general population, but the so there, I, I bring up the possibility that um, well, there's this this question of what's going on here. Is this like a directed kind of conspiracy, like, or is this like an organic like process just playing itself out? And I'd say it's always there's always probably elements of both. For the most part, it's organic. And even the the elements that are intentional are part of the, that organic process. Like in the, like in Ponerogenesis, that's what Ponerogenesis is all about. It's a it's it's a bunch of people running on autopilot, being influenced in ways that they're not aware of, and at at various nodes there are people intentionally pushing along the process for their own ends, um, and both kind of work together in this synergistic manner. Where like um, where and it creates this positive feedback loop loop where things just get worse because you have all these processes going on um, organically, no one's directing them, but you also have people egging them on and and just in increasing like the the frequency and the and the like the strength of the of the signal, and so when we look at these cognitive distortions, like we can we can say oh well in in general that looks like a criminal mentality going on. Well, I'd say that there are probably there are prob- there's probably a type of personality disorder or a group of them where those cognitive distortions are like um, in psychology that like they use the word the word schema schema. So like there's a, a an emotional like cognitive schema um, like a pattern developed over like a lifetime of these kind of thinking and uh, thinking and feeling habits. And so what's essentially happening is that 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 habit, which might be relatively normal to a certain percentage of the population is then being projected as like a norm 
And now we have all of these students who are seeing that norm and then through like social contagion kind of adopting it for themselves. But in the process, it's in the process, it's just making them more miserable. You know, it's giving them depression and anxiety. It's, it's leading them to suicide. It's not working, right? It's not, it's not, um, um, well, yeah, it's not working for them. Like uh, if, if it was something that was like true, if it was something that was like good, it, it would actually work. It would lead to, to a, a better outcome, but it's not leading to a good outcome. That's the sign that something is going wrong. So we have this, this, like, um, the, this, this mentality, this worldview that it's being like foisted upon, upon children and like trying to and, well, and succeeding to some degree in in molding them into into that image, but it's having all these negative effects because it 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 can't quite hold. Like there's some there's a a mismatch between like the the signal that's being sent and the like the receptive um, like system, which is the child. Like there's a there's a disconnect there, which just causes like it kind of puts you into self destruct mode. It, it just creates more more like mental illness. So I think there's something like that going on, and it just uh, I'm, I'll, I'll put forward a, like a, a, a hypothesis. I don't know if it's true or not, but remember like last year, I think it was, um, we did a show on it uh, back on the truth perspective. Uh, I think it was like a Reddit thread or something where, was it the one about like internal monologue? Was that the, was it internal monologue or, or mental imagery? where the, there was this, uh, this thread that started where someone said, oh, I just realized for the first time that people, um, that people can like, talk in their in their heads with a voice it's like or, or, well it was mental imagery or okay or it was a voice but a new one came out just like uh, the same thing happened just like a month ago um i can't remember which was first and which was second but let's say i can't remember so let's just say the first one was um was internal monologue so you know so someone makes this post oh you know i just realized that that wasn't just a, a figure of speech that people actually have a voice in their head that that like that talks thoughts I just assumed that, you know, that no one did that, that that was just a figure of speech. And then you have all these responses of people saying, oh, yeah, me too. No, and it, yeah, and it, and it was on Reddit. And so, so, so then the, all the people like on 4chan were like, oh, my God, look at these NPCs are real. It was the NPC show that we did on NPCs because that's, that's where the thing came from. And so, so, of course, they're just getting, all these Redditors are getting roasted by all these 4chaners because it's like, oh, my God, you, like, there's actually people that don't have a voice in their head, like, that they can't, like, internalize their, mon like, have an internal monologue with themselves and think things through. And then, um, like, a year later or so, or maybe more than a year, because I think that original post was from, was found, but it was a couple of years old. But then just in, like, uh, in June or July, um, a new one shows up about, like, internal imagery. It's like, oh my God, I, I, I didn't realize that people could actually form images in their head and like see them in, in their minds. Like it took me like years to, once I figured that, it took me years like of practicing to, to, to finally be able to visualize in my head. And so the same thing happened. Like all these people on Reddit replied, oh yeah, me too. I didn't know that was a thing. And, it's, and then uh, again, the 4chaners were like, oh my God, they're just like shaking their heads. Like there are actually people like this. So, and then we talked about... Um, um, the study that this one guy uh, had done um, where he he was looking at, um, I can't remember what they were called, like um, um, some kind of like internal imagery or, or something like that and how um, like the various types and the frequency and basically found that, yeah, a lot of people don't have um, any kind of internal awareness or it seems like a lot of, that a, a percentage of the population doesn't have any internal awareness. 
Like they, they aren't aware of the emotions that they're feeling. They're not, they don't have an internal monologue. They don't, well, and various people can have like different combinations. So some might not have one, some might not have another, but the, you know, they, they might balance out. But there's, it seems that there are some people that don't have like very much internal experience at all. So they, they just go through life kind of like t totally on autopilot. And that's where the NPC meme came from. And it just, so it just got like reinforced again on, on Reddit by, you know, a bunch of people uh, just just shocked that people have internal experience essentially and i'm wondering if there's something if if all these things aren't connected is it like there are there are some people for whom um the like this mentality is real it's like that that this is how they actually see the world they haven't been trained into it necessarily it's just it's just that their personality structure and there are there's a whole generation of of young people that are being like force fit into this mentality that's totally alien to to their actual their actual nature and um like this ties back to the 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 the, the discussion on microaggression in that paper and the like the inability seemingly to see the difference between intent and impact mm -hmm. it's like you you said something that offended me um i i think there are actually people that lack the ability to even distinguish between the idea that someone can have an intention and or or not, mm -hmm. they just see the behavior. They they can't conceive of the idea of an intention that um, that someone will say something insulting. Well, it must be because well, well, it's it's not even a question if they intended it or not. It's just that they did it, and that's the only thing that matters. It takes like I think the vast majority of people do and can see the difference between like an intended slight and one that that's unintentional. Um, that's just a part of um, just everyday life, like the normal socialization process. Like pe people grow up, and it's just that it's what Lobachevsky talks about. That just that psychological, um, um, just that normal psychological worldview that people develop. It's like you 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 come to understand that there are these things called intentions, and some people can do things unintentionally. So, like the examples they give, it's like you can have a total racist bigot that accidentally says something that might be um, like nice to, to a minority group, and that doesn't mean they're not a bigot. And, 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 or you can have someone that's just a, this total angel, you know, who, who is totally inclusive, who accidentally says something that's bad, and that doesn't make them a bigot. But to, the, but to, the, to a segment of the population, th those dis those, those, um, um, th there's no differentiation between those two there's no dis, 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 there's no distinguishing them it's just you you insulted me or you offended me and there there's no ability to even comprehend the idea that that they might not have intended it because i, I do think that there are probably you know a percentage of the population for whom that that isn't even um doesn't even enter their minds because they have no ability to to see nuance um, it's like they're seeing in two dimensions instead of three dimensions. They can't they can't see the emotional like reality behind it. They can't see the 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 possibility that there are some people um, that, that people can 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 accidentally say something that might be perceived as racist, even if it was intended in like the most non-racist way possible. So um, that's where I see the kind of the intentionality. Well, to to get back to the word of of like um, a segment of the activist class. It's like there are there are a group of people that um, that do um, 
that do have absolutely bad intentions, you know, even if they can't comprehend that about themselves, it's like they are, they're, they're the bad actors, you know, they're the ones that are out for trouble, that are, that are out for social engineering. Um, and, and they're the ones like egging this process on um, in the most malevolent way possible. And everyone else is just kind of like, just like, you know, leaves on the wind that they're just getting blown around um, like, uh, and triggered essentially they're being triggered and not even aware of it they're being uh, manipulated and not even being aware of it so we see all of these we see and, and you see just how um just how effective it is that th these processes are going on and like no one's aware of it because it is such it, to a large degree it is so organic it's so um unconscious it's just it's just propagating itself unconsciously it's emotionally it's on that social contagion level but there are these nodes of of individuals who who truly lack the nuance and lack the depth, lack the emotional depth to even be able to 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 like to make those distinctions, um, and who do not have like the best interests of anyone at heart. You know that they're only in it for for their own power games, essentially for their own self interest, and um, and you know that just ties back into like the was it the last show we did or the show before that, um, just about the. Um, just the level of kind of like Machiavellianism that that is behind some of these individuals, and uh, maybe there, unless unless anyone has some like quick closing remarks. All right, then we'll blend it there for the day. We went a bit over time, but uh, I don't know. It was fun. So thanks everyone. Take care. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening. Hit like, subscribe.